So if we think about depression, depression phenomenologically is, when you say a patient, they're depressed, what do they say? I have fatigue, um, I'm always tired, uh, I can't think straight, my brain feels like it's in a fog, um, I always feel weak even physically, lifting things takes energy out of me. So what they're describing is essentially a blunting of mitochondrial function, a blunting of it. I mean, if they, if they were to present to a neurologist without any depressive symptoms psychologically, just said, you know, my muscles are so weak and so tired, and, you know, there would be a suspicion that they may have a mitochondrial disease. This is episode 101 of the Neuro Experience Podcast. I'm your host, Louise Nicola. Joining me today at Everlast headquarters is Dr. Jay Lombard, an internationally acclaimed neurologist, author, and keynote speaker. I'm excited to get into today's episode because we touch on many things ranging from the gut-brain relationship, microbiome, and its effects on the human brain. And we go into many different topics ranging from emotions to psychiatric disorders. Let's get into it. Dr. Jay Lombard, welcome to Everlast Headquarters. Welcome to the Neuro Experience Podcast. Thank you very much. Great to be here. It's very great to be here. We're um, just... uh, I'm going to be real with everybody here. We just had a, a detailed 10-minute conversation when um, Jay walked in and let me tell you, I, I'm afraid we didn't get it on. Uh, we didn't record it because it was absolutely amazing. Now, I've told everybody a bit about you, but I want you to tell us in a brief rundown who you are, what you do now, what your bra- background is. Okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, so I initially trained as a psychiatrist at uh, Long Island Jewish Hospital many years ago and uh, after psychiatry, uh, I decided that I needed to understand more about the brain than uh, where psychiatry was at that point. So I switched over to neurology and became a neurologist. Um, I've practiced for almost 25 years, maybe longer than 25 years. Mm. Um, and uh, I've seen everything from you know autism to Alzheimer's, everything in between. Uh, I took a little bit of a sabbatical for about 10 years um, to create uh, a biotech company called Genomind, uh, which does biomarkers for psychiatric diseases, and uh, they're doing quite well. Mm-hmm. And um, I just recently went back into practice clinically after doing many different things in my life. Uh, I have a little bit of ADD, so I get bored, so I have to do different things. Yeah. And uh, so now I'm currently focused on neurodegenerative diseases, yes. uh, including ALS, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, uh, and CTE, which is what we were just discussing earlier, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Brilliant. That's absolutely incredible. Um, a big fan of your book. So um, I'm going to read a bit about that, what I've written about you first, okay? So and you can stop me if I'm um, if I'm wrong anyway. But internationally acclaimed neurologist, author, and keynote speaker, you help patients and their family experiencing intractable neurological conditions. Author of the highly acclaimed book, The Mind of God, Neuroscience, Faith, and a Search for the Soul. You were the chief of neurology at both Westchester Square Medical Center and Bronx Lebanon Hospital and a clinical assistant professor at New York Presbyterian Hospital and Albert Einstein Uh, College of Medicine. Now, I'm excited to talk to you for a number of reasons today. First and foremost, I know that you are a fan of um, talking to people about the microbiome-gut-brain relationship and how it interferes um, and dissects with neurodegenerative disorders, correct? Yes. So let's talk about that. Let's get really like, let's take a helicopter view first of all and then dig deep into what microbiome is 
Um, there's a lot of debate right now that you can look at Instagram, you can look at social media where a lot of people do get their information these days. Um, and there's this big uproar about gut-brain relationship and the gut is the second brain, but we don't really know too much about it. So can you tell us first and foremost, what is microbiome? Well, first of all, we know a lot about those connections, yeah. much much more than people are likely to find on just you know browsing the internet. Um, but the microbiome is a population of bacteria that live uh, in our guts. They're called enteropathogens if they're you know pr- capable of producing disease, or they're commensal bacteria that actually have been with us since you know the first days of life. So there's a competitive uh, uh, challenge between these pathogenic bacteria and the commensal bacteria. And when the pathogenic bacteria uh, reach certain critical levels of thresholds, they begin winning this war between you know, the two parties that actually have very di- divergent goals in their you know, life cycle. You know, mm. The commensal bacteria want to stay with us, and the, the bad bacteria want to eat us up. And if they don't eat us up when we're alive, they're surely going to eat us when we pass away. So they're very challenging uh, group of bacteria mm-hmm. that have not only been associated with gastrointestinal disease, but almost every systemic disease at this point, whether it's ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, uh, but equally important to me as a neurologist, strong associations between these gut bacteria and conditions like multiple sclerosis, um, ALS, Parkinson's, and Alzheimer's disease. So ALS, what is that? So you know, all these conditions, uh, whether, you, whether you say ALS, Alzheimer's, or Parkinson's disease, are descriptive terms that don't really uh, reveal, um, you know, the, the underlying biology of the condition. So what uh, those terms are gradually being changed to something called proteinopathies. Mm. And proteinopathy means that they, they share in common uh, a pathophysiological mechanism of protein aggregation. And that is the, the, the primary culprit of what leads to the pathological changes in the brains of patients who are suffering from ALS, Parkinson's, or Alzheimer's disease is protein aggregation. And the question is how uh, and why is there protein aggregation in patients? So we know that certain people have genetic risk, mm-hmm. uh, which means that they're not able to you know, clear these abnormal protein aggregates uh, so they build up, because they build up in everybody, but only certain people get diseases. And now there's interesting connections between protein aggregation and bacterial toxicity. And that's where my research currently is. So how can we, so a patient comes in and they're presenting with symptoms of ALS. How do you, what's your first protocol? The protocol is to first confirm that that's the diagnosis because there's a lot of disease mimickers. Mm. Uh, Paraneoplastic syndromes can sometimes be confused with ALS. Um, and there's, there's, you know, it's a long list of differential diagnoses, but usually uh, those are rare phenomena. So a patient, you know, clinically presents with, you know, typical signs and symptoms of ALS, which affects motor neurons. They develop mm. degeneration of, of muscles. Most patients experience uh, difficulty with fine motor movements, buttoning, mm. uh, using utensils. Uh, and it's a progressive disorder, uh, meaning that the average person from, you know, diagnosis to ALS uh, the average lifespan is three to five years. Uh, and there's no treatment uh, that uh, has been shown to date to be able to actually uh, inhibit the trajectory of this disorder. So it's a, it's a very area of very strong active research. Uh, many young people, uh, when I first was a resident in neurology, 
I, I think I saw maybe two cases of ALS in like you know four years of training. Uh, now uh, we're seeing much younger people diagnosed with ALS, um, and there's a higher incidence of ALS that's been reported over the last decade. Why is that? Well, no one knows, but uh, my personal hypothesis on this is if you look at epidemiological data, um, that there's a uh, increased incidence of hypervirulent strains of bacteria, including Clostridium difficile, that correlates uh, in a linear relationship with increased recognition um, of Clostridium infection uh, with ALS. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that one is causal to the other, but it's a very interesting association studies that, that we're seeing this correlation between the gut microbiome and dysbiosis and the instance of these conditions. So could you say that if we reverse engineer everything, because the prevalence now is getting greater, if we bring it back to, is it environmental um, things that we can look at? Is it the foods that we're eating? Is it the stress that we have? So I'm, I'm a nut in terms of reverse engineering. Yes, yeah. you know, <laughs> I like that. Right. Uh, and the reason I'm a nut in that case is because when I see a patient uh, sitting you know, next to me and asking me questions about, well, what do we do here? Um, you know, the conventional answer is, well, there is nothing to do. Some of these treatments have some, you know, extend lifespan by two or three months at best. So I'm like, that's not acceptable because that's not what I want to tell a patient. So mm. in terms of reverse engineering, you know, I have looked very specifically in very detailed analysis of how we can actually uh, couple the, the concept of dysbiosis to conditions like ALS and Parkinson's. And the, the bad news is that there is a very, very strong argument uh, that these bacteria are causal, not, not casually associated, but causal to these conditions, mm. um, that they can precipitate protein aggregation in the same way that uh, we know that the, spur, the genetic causes of ALS produce protein aggregation. So as far as finding an etiology, I don't think we have to look much further uh, than these bacteria. And when, when we look at these bacteria, we have to understand what are their, what's their secret sauce? How are these bacteria actually crossing uh, the blood-brain barrier because mm. they're, they're classically not in the bloodstream? So what's happening at that level? Um, thanks to people like Leo Galland, who's uh, someone I worked with you know, a million years ago, who's the best functional medicine doctor out there, right in New York, by the way. You know, he was talking about leaky gut before people knew what the word leaky or gut even was. Mm. Uh, and I actually trained, I had the fortune to train with him for a year after my uh, neurology residency. But so that the first stage is that we're seeing higher incidence of leaky gut. What is leaky gut just for the people who don't really know that right. much? So leaky gut means that we have a mucosal barrier that is selective. It's supposed to only take in the good guys. Uh, so we absorb, you know, nutrients, you know, uh, amino acids, uh, and not allow uh, the bad guys to cross the border. So it's a, it's a border control biologically. Uh, and what happens in people with leaky gut is that border patrol has gone on strike uh, or people are calling in sick. Uh, so certain cells that line the mucosal barrier become hyperpermeable to pathogens, mm. which then enter into the systemic circulation uh, and produce a low-grade uh, um, uh, toxicity that people may not diagnose because you classically think of bacteria as producing septic shock. So mm. people say, well, you know, you cannot have clostridium in the bloodstream unless you're dying of, you know, botulinum toxin. But that's not the case. There is actually evidence that these conditions produce bacteremia beyond the gut and also evidence that they cross the blood-brain barrier. 
which mm. is very scary because once they cross the blood-brain barrier, then all bets are off. All bets are off. Yep. It's interesting you speak about that because I know that you're interested, in, and like I am too, in the preventative method rather than the diagnostic, you know, rather than the Band-Aid method. What can we be doing each and every single day to prevent this from happening, to prevent, um, you know, to help our microbiome instead of going, oh, my God, you know what, let's go get an MRI, let's go get a, a CT, and then, bam, let's fix it then. Exactly. A great question, by the yeah. way. So, you know, my practice is, you know, after the horse is out of the barn. Yeah. Right? So the patients that I see, unfortunately, uh, those those recommendations are, are less significant for them than it would be for a person who's just worried mm. about what a leaky gut means and what that can do or not do in terms of developing a, some kind of bacteremia that could lead to a neurodegenerative disease, let's say 20 or 30 years later. So it's a very, very good question you're asking. Mm. Uh, the first thing that I found is that uh, there, are, there are compounds that actually increase the uh, mucosal barrier. So they actually increase uh, the viscosity uh, of the mucosal barrier, which does two things. One is it, it prevents the bad guys from getting in because they kind of, you know, try to latch on to the gastric mucosa, and they sl- literally slip down. <laughs> you know, they can't, they can't adhere to the barrier. Uh, wow. So uh, compounds that actually increase mucosal barrier integrity, uh, one of them is actually from brown seaweed, uh, which is an amazing story. Uh, it's actually, I think your, your listeners will be quite interested in this story. So something called uh, sodium alginate, uh, which is a uh, sort of a polysaccharide uh, that is found, as like I said, in seaweed. So where did this, this story commercially go? It's a very interesting story because there is actually uh, a, comp, uh, a, a product called Gaviscon, which is actually used both in the States and in Europe, mm. but they're different products. So the Gaviscon that's used in Europe actually is pure sodium alginate, mm-hmm. but it's much more expensive. So what happened with the, the product label, the branding, whatever else, in the U.S., if people pick up Gaviscon, they're picking up basically, uh, I forgot what the, um, the typical antacids are that are, are actually not aluminum hydroxide, for instance, which is the worst thing you could actually give a person uh, who's worried. But it's, it's a very cheap, you know, antacid. So they replaced the sodium alginate uh, with, you know, the aluminum hydroxide product. Uh, but, you know, sodium alginate is definitely an important component to enhancing mucosal integrity. Wow. It's so interesting. Um, I, I've been reading a lot about um, Naveen Jain. Is that, um, I think that, uh, he's, the, oh, he's the CEO of, uh, I think it's my, my, my um, He's um, created this test that you can take home at home kit. Maybe it's about $200 where you can actually test your microbiome to see, you know, where you're sitting, what's good for you, what's good for your gut, how to eat um, better and how to eat healthier. And I think with the rise of, you know, uh, he was maybe one of the first, with the rise of this, I think we're going to be looking at more evidence behind um, the relationship between the gut and the brain, how we can be eating better um, and what type of environmental factors actually affect us because we're all different. We're all made differently and everything affect, everybody is affected differently. Is that right? So I think having an at-home DNA test is probably the future of this type of, um, this field of medicine. People are looking at um, various, you know, biomarkers that have high specificity for understanding the gut microbiome. It's very difficult to, uh, from a, to get a snapshot of the entire GI tract uh, from a fecal analysis because uh, 
some of the bacteria that are actually causing pathology uh, are upstream, they're mm. uptown. They're mm. on 96th Street. They're not mm. downtown like we are in 34th Street. Uh, so those those are very good tests at a certain level, but they're they're not fully comprehensive enough to understand uh, the bacteria that, for instance, you know, there's lots of correlations with uh, bacteria in the gums. Mm. Um, I'll tell you a very interesting story uh, that may uh, frighten some of your listeners, but it's a patient that I have with ALS um, who developed uh, bulbar ALS, which is basically affecting his ability to speak and to swallow. And the history that he had uh, was that he had a he was healthy his entire life, no no medical problems, nothing, no GI symptoms, nada. Uh, he gets a tooth extracted, um, and they put in an implant. Um, you know, a couple of months after that. And he, his wife first knows that he was dysarthric, that he, that he wasn't speaking properly, which they assumed was because of, you know, the physical disruption mm. of, of his jaw. And then finally he progressed to, you know, to ALS, tongue fasciculation, everything else like that. The point of the story is that the, the closest, most proximal uh, region uh, to the brain uh, is the oral mucosa, and those are the bacteria that we probably have to be most concerned about. Oh, wow. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Yes. <laughs> wow, that's scary. Yes, it is. Yes, so what does is. that mean? Well, it means that I think people need to uh, call their periodontist, uh, you know, 1-800-PERIODONTIST, uh, to find uh, an enlightened uh, periodontist who understands uh, this connection between the oral mucosa and the brain, uh, because you really first have to start with the most proximal region uh, of the brain. After that, you know, uh, I think all that, all that other stuff is obviously important as well. So, uh, you know, how to improve, you know, the microbiome in the, you know, small intestine because there is clearly dysbiosis going there now. Mm. Uh, there's a condition called SIBO, which is, mm, you know, SIBO, yes. right, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And that's where I kind of became interested in the connection between uh, neurodegeneration um, and uh, the gut was through patients with, with diagnosed with SIBO. What is SIBO? So that was... <laughs> you just have yeah. cut you off. I'm right. excited. So it's, uh, it's, it's basically stands for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. But they, you know, there's not a lot of specificity in that diagnosis either, meaning that they, they diagnose these patients through breath tests to see if they have, you know, changes in secretion of, of hydrogen sulfide, it's a clinically recognized test to establish a diagnosis of SIBO, but it doesn't specifically tell you what bacterium are involved in SIBO. So SIBO can be, you know, H. pylori, mm. which may have a different treatment than a condition that is generated by a different bacteria like Clostridium. Mm. Uh, so there needs to be higher specificity in terms of our diagnoses of which bacteria are producing these problems. I mean, you can do sort of an overkill, mm. right? That's dangerous because what happens when you kind of do a sort of, you know, uh, you know, take no prisoners approach? You give them you know, very high potency antibacterial agents. All that does is make the weaker bacteria die, mm. and the stronger bacteria become spores, and those spores are what actually uh, acts as pods. Uh, in pod, they, and they podcast <laughs> once the immune system is you know weakened. Yeah. So those bacteria stay in our bodies no matter how many antibiotics we give them. I have patients that with chronic Lyme disease have been on IV antibiotics for more than two years. And I, I look at them and say, 
this is obviously not the right approach. If you, I mean, you're, 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 making, you're going from a bad situation to a much worse situation because all you're doing by staying on antibiotics so long is making the bad guys really, really, really bad. Mm. Really bad. You know, it, it would be hard to get to this because, I mean, a patient comes in, they present with um, lower intestinal, like, swelling. They may come in and say, you know what, I'm bloating. I've been taking... Um, uh, I've been taking um, what do you, Advil. We don't have that in Australia. Uh, I've been taking Advil for the past three months. I'm still not going down. I think I have IBS. I've started to eliminate. You know, they do their own diagnosis. I've started to eliminate um, wheat and seeds from my diet, and it still hasn't worked. And then they come to you, and then I, I would say the major recommendation you asked about prevention. Yes. Right. Besides, you know, the mucosal barrier, getting a good, you know, oral exam from a periodontist. Uh, to make sure that, you know, whatever bacteria are there, because we all harbor those bacteria in our gums. Mm. Uh, but there are ways, you know, preventative ways of actually, you know, producing a, a bacteriostatic. It's not bactericidal, because those guys are going to live there no matter what we do. Mm. But we want to get the, the dysbiosis to be a, we should coin a term here, a, uh, a rebiosis. Yeah. <laughs> rebiosis. Yeah. So we want rebiosis, not dysbiosis. Um, but the... Uh, the other major thing I would I would tell listeners, uh, if they're interested in this topic, is to avoid at all costs PPIs, uh, the Prilosex, the Prevacids, uh, these uh, you know seemingly innocuous uh, over-the-counter medications. Actually, um, you know, there's been data actually from Australia. I forgot which um, researcher this was that showed a clear correlation between the rapidity of ALS progression. Uh, in patients that were on uh, PPIs. Wow. So there's some over-the-counter medication that actually can help aggregate this and, and make it come about Well, I don't faster? think it's that simple. I think what, what PPIs do is they end up, you know, acid is not bad for us, to be no. honest with you, okay? What, what, when we have heartburn, yep. okay, the reason that, that our body's creating acid is to kill bacteria, Mm. The bacteria don't like acid. It's like the Wizard of Oz where you like put the special water on it. Yeah. Okay, they do not like acid. So when we, we create an environment of, of antacidity, right? Mm. We give, you know, antioxidants, we give, you know, PPIs, we give whatever we do to reduce acid uh, makes us feel better symptomatically, but that actually is in, emboldening the enemy because they, they, they don't like an acid environment. So when we inhibit acid, they grow better. That's the connection between PPIs and this dysbiosis story. Wow, it's so detailed. Um, okay, so let's move. Let's move on to. I know. Um, I want to move on to psychiatry. Okay, uh -oh. and, and uh oh, um, <laughs> I told her I'm not a psychiatrist. I know, and you know, and I heard you know nothing about the brain. That's what you said to Doctor well, Mark Hyman. No, I know. Actually, I should correct myself. I know very, very little about the brain. In fact, most, wow, that's a that's a scary thing to say. Well, it's because we all know very little about the yeah. brain, and uh, so it's a good news, bad news story because those that are curious of neuroscience, no matter how much you learn, there's always more to learn. There's like, always every, more every to learn. single day. There's something new to learn. So it's just, for me, as a, a you know, curious person in general, mm. uh, as well as uh, my colleague in Australia, by the way, who's uh, equally uh, very curious about things, it, 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 it keeps your, your mind always active. Mm. So it's not a bad thing to, to, be, to have this humility because 
Without that humility, we stop asking the questions we have to ask. Mm. Speaking of which, um, this is just off topic. I, I, I did a post recently on social media um, trying to put a stop to this whole notion of we only use 10% of our brain. <laughs> and it really upsets me. And I put it out there. I think I got about 150 comments from people saying, but I heard this and I heard this. And, I, and I'm like, it's, 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 called, it's, it's called neuromythology. Yes. I called it a neuromyth. Exactly. <laughs> I put, I put neuromyth. We only use 10% of our brains. I want people to stop saying that. Right. So, um, so moving back. So you spoke a lot about uh, DSM-5. Um, well, you, I mean, in a 2012 TED Uh-oh. Talk, okay? Yes. okay, DSM-5. Now, I know that the the latest DSM-5 was released in 2013 and that's probably backing up what you just said where we're learning new things every single day about the brain and then obviously um, neurological disorders, psychiatry. I want to go into two and that is, let's look at schizophrenia. Ah. Yes. So that's a perfect example about why DSM is always going to be a flawed mm. methodology for diagnosing patients. Oh, so you don't believe in it? Well, it's not a matter of not believing it. It's a matter of trying to take what's good about it and actually wed it to what we know about neuroscience, which a lot of people have been trying to do. uh, And that's, you know, I don't want to get involved in DSM politics, but trust me, there's a lot of DSM politics uh, that were involved in these revisions, uh, as there always are, Mm. uh, because different stakeholders have different interests in, in what things are. Schizophrenia doesn't mean anything. When you say someone's schizophrenic, what does that mean, right? When you say someone's bipolar, mm. or that... split or multiple personality bipolar disorder. Well, no, multiple personality does mean what it is. I mean, that, okay. that is actually a descriptive term. Uh, but schizophrenia is it is descriptive in terms of its you know phenomenology, but it's not mm. descriptive about the biology at all. And we know a lot about the biology of schizophrenia, um, so we should really call it something different than schizophrenia, so we know actually what problem actually is. And that's true for autism as well. It's true for, you know, for even things like bipolar disease. So my, my talk at, at TEDMED was about changing the, um, the, the descriptions of psychiatric diseases to reflect their underlying biology as opposed to describing just their symptomatology. That was what the talk was mainly about. And that through biomarkers, whether they're genetic biomarkers, because uh, that's what, you know, most of my early research you know, with uh, sort of my involvement in psychiatry was looking at genetics of psychiatric diseases. Since then, that whole field has moved from from DNA to epigenetics, mm. right, which is, you know, the ability of expressing or not expressing certain genes. And that's moved to something called proteomics, which is the, the closest uh, proximal description of what's happening in schizophrenia. It's interesting because what we're seeing now um, and what I see, especially in Australia, the rate of uh, disorders such as schizophrenia coming about from excessive drug abuse is rising. Yes. Um, I spent some time in Including THC, by the way. Ooh, that's a hot topic. Well, it's 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 not a hot topic in terms of that fact. I mean, right now in the media, um, what are we, September... uh, what is it today? September 16th. Um, there's been, I think in the last, you know, three weeks, there's been what, three or four reported deaths from the usage of vaping. And um, I've been talking a lot about THC and CBD and the effects on the brain. Um, and there's a lot of different misconceptions out there. There's sure. people saying, you know, there's medicinal marijuana, there's, but then there's people saying it's bad for you. So let's clear it let's, up. Let's, let's clear, clear it up. up. So let's... Tell us everything because I'm excited about this. All right. This is, this is so simple 
that I'm, I'm glad that we this. came to talk about this. So I hope that your listeners pay attention and uh, I take no responsibility for what I'm about to say. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. THC in the brain. Okay. So think of marijuana as a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde plant. Dr. Okay. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Okay. THC is, is mostly Mr. Hyde. Okay. What I mean by that is that THC is a very potent dopamine agonist. Uh, it increases, you know, uh, what are called hyperdopaminergic states. Uh, and if you, you know, push that envelope too far in certain individuals that are at risk of developing psychosis, uh, you can induce psychotic events uh, that become schizophrenia with ongoing THC use. Now, the, 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 the Mr. Hyde of the marijuana plant are, are certain other cannabinoids, CBD being the, the first one, but there's also CBG and some others that are uh, part of this entourage effect of, of non-THC-led effects in the brain. Uh, in that case, CBD is, is Superman. Uh, the, the data on, on using CBD clinically uh, for patients with post-traumatic stress disorder, for instance, has shown clear efficacy. Uh, there's a drug now that is pure CBD for epilepsy. Yes, I've uh, seen that. Right, which, you know, that whole story started with um, uh, Charlotte's Web and the Stanley Brothers who developed, you know, the first, you know, over-the-counter CBD use. Uh, and I, by the way, I've used their product, you know, for, you know, almost a decade now. And it's to me, it's the best medicinal CBD. Mm-hmm. So if people are looking to, to, uh, to separate the wheat from the chafe, uh, I would only advise people using THC if they're going to use it. Uh, definitely under a doctor's prescription. This should, you know, to me, using t- THC as a recreational or under the heading of you know medical marijuana is is a myth. It's mm-hmm. a myth. There's very very little uh, clinical utility for THC except for like for instance patients uh, who have cancer that have you know severe vomiting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it works very well for those patients. It increases appetite, obviously, the munchies, mm. right? But CBD is is the opposite. CBD is really the more beneficial of the two. So I have a hard time expressing this to people who tell me, oh, but Louisa, um, you know, I do it because I, I've got high levels of anxiety. Right, well, so... <laughs> Help me with this. What do I say to them? <laughs> so, so THC will actually exacerbate their anxiety, yeah. exacerbate it. I don't know about you, but, uh, you know, look, I grew up... You know, I, I actually did inhale. Okay, remember the Bill Clinton? I did not inhale. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, very often I would have, like, major panic attacks yeah. when I smoked pot, uh, meaning, like, my heart would be racing, like, you know, to 140 beats. One of my friends actually developed an atrial arrhythmia uh, mm. after smoking high potency. Uh, he's an ER doc, by the way. Wow. You know? So THC is a very, very dangerous drug. Uh, I think that the FDA really should step up uh, in terms of their pharmacovigilance uh, about how much THC is in products that are being used over the counter because we're, we're really at a train wreck state uh, if we promote THC use. But again, the flip side of that is that we don't want to separate, we don't want to reject marijuana as a, as a health benefit uh, just because of the, you know, the Mr. Hyde. No, I'm sorry, the doctor. Wait, mm. which is it? The bad stuff. Yeah. I keep... Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Yeah. Hyde, right? So we want we want more Dr. Jekyll, which is CBD, yeah. and less Mr. Hyde, which is THC. 
Interesting. I hope everyone um, took note on that. Um, no, it, you know, it's banned in Australia everywhere. It's. Um, I don't think at the moment they're looking at even bringing it in for medicinal use. So where we haven't been brought up with it, I, you know, I came to America two years ago and it's just so normal, especially in California. And I'm like, oh no, we, we haven't been brought up with it in Australia. So I'm really interested in it. Um, but I am a big fan of CBD. I ingest it um, with drops. Um, I don't vape it, um, which apparently is the new thing to do. Um, but staying away from those after reading and um, yes. seeing people who have died from it. So, okay. So in your TED Med talk, going back to it, you spoke about emotions, um, uh, emotional states being qualitative, like dynamic. So where does depression, anxiety, and, and schizophrenia reside in the brain? Let's do depression first. Yeah, let's okay. do the depression. Like there's different stages, correct? Well, they all, they all reside within cell structures. Yes. Okay, and the two cell structures they reside most in uh, is obviously DNA, right? Because that's going to regulate all the protein manufacture of cells. So there's lots of data that these conditions have uh, what's called a polygenic uh, effect on the diseases. So like, for instance, schizophrenia probably is up to like, you know, 85 or maybe more than that genes. So the question is, what, what else is going on here? What's the common thread for all those genes? Uh, so in depression, uh, as well as bipolar, uh, as well as schizophrenia, uh, it's the mitochondria that are actually adversely affected. Um, and I could give a shout out to Dr. Roy Perlis because he's done a lot of this work uh, showing mitochondrial dysfunction uh, in bipolar patients. Um, I think he's still doing that research right now. My original hypothesis of autism was it was a mitochondrial disease. Mm. Uh, that's been since substantiated, not in every autistic case, but in a significant uh, percentage of autism. Uh, and I think depression is clearly a mitochondrial disease as well. So let me explain why I, I think mm. that. And it, Before you get into it, I'm sorry to cut you off. Mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell? Yes. Okay. That's so. right. It's basically the energy-producing unit of the cell. Uh, all of the body requires mitochondria. Uh, it's, it's the utility. If you mm. want to buy a good stock uh, in your biology, it's the mitochondria. Because without mitochondrial function the lights will not go on on Broadway, mm. right? So if we think about depression, depression phenomenologically is, when you say a patient, they're depressed, what do they say? I have fatigue, um, I'm always tired, uh, I can't think straight, my brain feels like it's in a fog, um, I always feel weak even physically, lifting things takes energy out of me. So what they're describing is essentially a blunting of mitochondrial function blunting of it. I mean, if they, if they were to present to a neurologist without any depressive symptoms psychologically, just said, you know, my muscles are so weak and so tired, and, you know, there would be a suspicion that they may have a mitochondrial disease. Mm -hmm. uh, and we have very good abilities right now to test mitochondrial testing, both genetically uh, and sporadic forms of mitochondrial dysfunction. Uh, and I don't know the data off the top of my head, but I am sure there's significant amounts of data that, that show a direct correlation between depression uh, and mitochondrial dysfunction, That's as there is for autism and for schizophrenia and for bipolar as well. So are you saying that um, we can be born with it via DNA and then we can also, it, it can come about via... They're both, they're most, these are mostly sporadic mutations. Mm -hmm. So most of the, the classic mutations are recognized by any neurologist, like something called MILAS. Mm -hmm. They have lactic acidosis, strokes, migraines... But the patients who develop these uh, because of epigenetic changes in mitochondrial function, okay. right, those may present the same way w without being a formal mitochondrial diagnosis. 
Okay, so SSRIs, are they useful in this case or can we get back to, you know, the cold shower therapy? Well, you know, look, I, I am definitely not anti-medication by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I just think that we are over-liberally using medications mm-hmm. without understanding uh, the rebound effect that medications can have. So I think there's got to be sort of a middle ground between not rejecting psychopharmacology at a hand but really holding their feet to the fire in terms of properly prescribing, which is really what Genomine was about, right? Mm. To, to create sort of an awareness that certain gene defects uh, in metabolism are going to give much higher risk of adverse effects to medications that depend upon those genes to be metabolized. Um, but in, in regards to, what was your question? <laughs> I, was, I was going to say, okay, let's, let's get back. Yeah, I'm like so enthralled in this. Uh, so if someone presents with, they come and they say, I I'm, I'm, think I've got depression, I'm this, I'm that, is the best course of action first to pres- once they've been diagnosed with a form of depression? Oh, to use an SSRI to use, is yeah. question. Uh, no, I don't think that's the best solution. I think that uh, there are many lifestyle things that are so much better than antidepressants, and mm. we should only use antidepressants in cases. We, when I trained in psychiatry, a person only went on antidepressant if they met the criteria of major depression. Not like they were just, ah, oh, you know, I'm, I get anxious when I go to you know baseball games, and every time my kid you know spills ice cream on me, it really freaks me out because I you know my dry cleaning bills are too high. Oh, take Zoloft, take Celexa, <laughs> you know, uh, whatever the latest drug is for for anxiety. Uh, but no, those these medications have very real beneficial effects in severe patients with depression. Severe, and, yes. and I think in bipolar, it's even a stronger case that, that anticonvulsants particularly are very, very effective, as is lithium for yes. bipolar patients. We can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm. But in terms of people that have this more common dysthymia, mm. they're, not, they're not suicidally depressed, but they have low-grade depression, which, by the way, I think you know, who doesn't have yeah. some sense of dysthymia? Yeah. Uh, so the interventions that are important for people are basically diet and lifestyle interventions. Mm-hmm. Physical exercise, uh, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the preacher that, you know, should wear the collar myself, but physical exercise is a much better antidepressant head-to-head with any SSRI approved by the FDA. Head-to-head wow. studies, physical exercise. Yeah. Um, so that BDNF. It's increasing BDNF. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I think there's also, as I talk about this every single podcast, there is a strong link um, between moods, I won't say depression, um, and social media. And I think that, I think you need an emotional license uh, to have Instagram. So I might get on the phone to Mark Zuckerberg and and talk to him about that. You want to talk to Mark Zuckerberg right now? Yeah, let's just (laughs) get him on the phone and say, listen, create an emotional license for people who are, you know, going through depression because they saw a post. And, I, you know, that goes into mental toughness, which we won't get into. But um, I I think that the the people that need the emotional uh, test are the people who develop these technologies. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. Bold claim. So, okay, that's depression. Let's let's talk about um, anxiety because there's different forms of it. We know that. But how many times a day do we hear somebody say, "I've got anxiety. This gives me. This makes me anxious. I'm suffering from anxiety." Are you really? Well, you know, listen. So I, I have two teenage daughters who are, you know, oh, just gosh. such beautiful kids, and I get to see you know, this, this adolescent uh, world every day. And, uh, you know, it's unfortunate that the kids, all kids are, are literally hypnotized by, by cell phone use. Mm. And, and cell phone use uh, was specifically designed uh, so that it would be habit-forming. 
addictive. Yeah, yeah. They, they, there's strong um, research that shows that the people who go into making your apps create an an addiction, just like cocaine. That's why. They, that's why that I think that these folks are the ones that need the emotional tests because you know we've created an addiction that's not a uh, a physical addiction, but it's everything exactly like a physical addiction. There's no difference. People, when you take their cell phones away, go through withdrawal. Mm. Withdrawal. It's like, oh, my God, you can't take that away from me. People have died uh, dropping their cell phones on subway tracks. And like a rational person, like, okay, you know what? Goodbye, cell phone. I mean, they go on the tracks and they get hit by trains. Uh, People have have fallen off buildings, uh, you know, trying to reach for their cell phone. And talk about, you know, the major risk of this are traffic accidents. My my Mm. friend was an ER doctor. He said that the risk of cell phone usage uh, and car accidents is is as equal to or greater than alcohol abuse. Wow. Alcohol abuse. So, you know, and just as another factoid, you know, Steve Jobs wouldn't let his own children use cell phones or, or digital I did technologies. not know that. So, uh, you know, it's, it's sad because I think that there is, you know, technology is neutral, right? Technology is not bad or good. Uh, but we have to be very cognizant of when we develop technologies, how to promote the value of those. So, you know, so the idea of social networking and social communication is a very, very positive uh, um, aspect of digital technologies, very positive. But at the same time, uh, if it's not understood and used properly, uh, what we've done is we've digitalized ourselves. Mm. You know, there's a great show on uh, BBC, I think it's called Dark Mirror, which is all about this, you know, this dystopia that's based upon our digitalization of our consciousness, you know? Wow. Yeah. And by the way, the book is about that because I think that we as scientists... Is this your book? Yes. I was just about to get into that, so yes. So that's one of the points I try to make in the book, which is that we've gone as a society uh, to a pure quantitative state of value. Everything is is quantitative valuations, right? Stock market, you know, uh, you know, your the worth of your relationships. Everything has a monetary or quantitative value. Uh, EMRs are based upon this this quantitative model, uh, and what we've subtracted from that quantitative model uh, is the interior of our being, our subjective being, which is qualitative, not quantitative. Mm. So, you know, sometimes I, I joke that you know psychiatry has lost its mind. Mm. And, and I literally, I mean that literally, mean that we've gone so far to the other reductionistic aspect. You know, can we quantify depression? Uh, the answer is yes and no. We can quantify it, but we can never really describe what depression actually is. The same thing is true for consciousness. We can we can do our best to try to quantify consciousness, mm. but we could never really, even with that quantification, can never really understand what consciousness actually is. Wow. Uh, and they, they keep saying that we're just at the start, you know, even 2020, we're still at the start of really understanding the brain. Oh, that's what I mean. And we, brain mapping, yeah. We, uh, we know so much and we know so little. Mm. Um, the, the good news is that the little that we know uh, will always build uh, and develop momentum uh, in the way that we'll be able to successfully treat uh, patients with these severe diseases. So it's kind of like like a chaos order theory, like we're going to get to such a hyper order of understanding the brain to reach a point where we've gone down every rabbit hole mm. and we realize that there's never an end to those rabbit holes. Mm. Let's go back in, from the beginning mm. and see what, what the first rabbit hole looked like, mm. which is always going to be subjective. It's not going to be quantitative. Mm. 
Now, before we actually hit record, we we spoke about um, my company, Neuro Athletics, um, and we brought up some interesting cases that you've um, been involved with, especially regarding the NFL. And I'm um, I'm very big on the fact that I believe that every team, NFL, NBA, Major League Soccer, Major League Baseball, should have a registered. I don't, uh, maybe a psychologist, yes, or a neurologist, um, someone who's taking care of the brain. And Neuro- neuropsychologist. You, they love that. Uh, so interesting that you said that. Um, neuropsychologist, because why? Well, we need to really understand the brain. I, I try and give analogies to people who don't know um, too much the, the medical science behind the brain and say that, um, and, and back me up if you want to, the brain, uh, think of the brain and the mind as separate and think of um, the brain as, let's look at the house, okay? You know, the physical the structure, hardware. the yeah. hardware, and look yeah. at the mind inside. I always say the brain comes first. Instead of changing mindset first and positive psychology let's let's look at the brain the hardware which can in turn let's look at that first which in turn I think it's bidirectional you I, think it's bidirectional 100 percent. i don't i don't think that if we try to separate them out like that they will we'll be caught in that sort of uh you know schroeder's cat kind of problem so that we, we can't separate brain and mind uh, we need to understand them differently and find a, a common language between them yeah. uh, which is a challenge because you know the brain is a quantitative organism uh, that produces uh, qualitative states, right? So mind is the, is the uh, emergence of brain machinery, mm. uh, but mind is the perception of the biology itself. So we're kind of caught in this loop, well, we, we, we only can perceive what the brain's letting us perceive, uh, and there's probably a reason why the brain's not letting us perceive certain things, right? Yeah. Um, so people call that in philosophy the firewall. David Chalmers, by the way, who's uh, the most brilliant uh, psychologist, uh, I'm sorry, philosopher in the world, uh, with my friend Dan Kolak, um, who's from Australia, by the way. Really? Yes. You've got a lot of Australian so, uh, David Chalmers, give him a shout out for your program. <laughs> He's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant person who's written about this mind-body consciousness issue. So I think clinically we cannot separate out mind uh, from brain. Are you aware of the work of, I cut you off again, are you aware of the work of jo- Dr. Joe Dispenza? I've heard it, but can you tell me more about it? Well, he's, um, um, he, he's looking at how emotions actually um, have a direct effect on the brain. So he's going from you know uh, mind to brain and saying that you can, uh, I believe he said this, he's done over 5,000 um, brain scans to show that that, that emotions change the structure and the gray matter of the brain, which means that you can do things now to increase a neurological disorder via thoughts alone. Oh, of course. You believe that? Yeah. I mean, Gandhi said it, right? Mm. Change your thoughts and you'll change your biology. Mm. So that's what I mean. It goes both ways. We can't. We have to yeah. address the bottom up, mm-hmm. which is looking at the biology and how by changing biology we change the mind, because mm-hmm. we know we can do that, right? We have to also look at how the mind can change the body. Mm. So it's, it's, a, it's a reciprocal, you know, arrows. It's not, it's not linear. It's circular. So in saying that, back to um, what I was talking about, how can we now how, – how, like can you look at a sports team with the amount of revenue that they're bringing in, especially in, um, in the U.S. alone? Don't you think it's ludicrous to not have a registered neuropsychologist on board? Well, I think that the players, uh, many of them, are you know under uh, our mutual care in one way or another f- 
for conditions, certainly need to uh, create a groundswelling uh, for asking that being part of their condition to play, especially in the NFL. Uh, you know, TBIs are common, you know, in all sports, as we talked about earlier, but in the NFL, it's, it's basically their bread and butter are TBIs. Uh, and, you know, these athletes end up, uh, many of them becoming disabled for life hmm. after these injuries. So I, I think, yes, I think the answer is that we should have the, the players themselves mandate that they have a neuropsychologist or, or a neurologist who's you know, equally competent in neurology and psychiatry, or even both, uh, to be you know, part of a certain team so that when they have TBIs uh, that are severe, that they probably do a workup. And we talked about what that workup would be. Mm. Uh, so I'm going to give another shout-out to Dr. Michael Lipton, uh, who's you know, one of the best neuroradiologists in the country that uh, helped develop uh, what's called DTIs, which we discussed as being a very important uh, imaging uh, for patients with uh, you know, either TB, severe TBIs mm. uh, or who are at risk of developing chronic traumatic encephalopathy or CTE. Mm. That's remarkable. Look, your, your work is remarkable, everything you've done. Um, if you guys want to take a read, and, and I think that you should go and check out um, Dr. Jay Lombard's book. Um, can you tell us a bit more about where we can find out more about you? Where is your book? Sure. So uh, I now have a website. I never had a website before. It's kind of an interesting experience to be like, you know, out there in this, <laughs> yeah. you know, world that's not... You're not too active on Instagram either. I tagged you on Instagram. Oh, no. I'm, 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 I'm not on Instagram. I'm not on uh, Facebook. I'm not on Twitter. <laughs> I, I make a deliberate attempt uh, to not be on any of those sites. Uh, only, you know, not disparaging anyone that does, but I just, uh, I'm an old-fashioned, I'm a country doctor at yeah. heart. I am a country doctor. Uh, but my, my website, I want to be a country doctor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In my fantasy, I'm still a country doctor. Uh, it's www.drjaylombard.com. I'm going to put that in the footnotes too. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on board and being part of the Neuro Experience.